The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Peter Clark. This is Ear to Asia. It's hard, slow, grassroots work to build empowered women so that over the long term they can continue to have a say in what's best for them. It's a long and winding road to help empower the women at the village level. Maybe we don't have certainty on the result yet, but you can really see how things slowly change and how things influence the way women think and also the way male think about how things should be done. In this episode, Empowering Women in Rural Indonesia. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialists at the University of Melbourne. If the number of female cabinet ministers is any indication of the status of women in Indonesia, then it's looking good in the current Jokowi administration, which has nine women cabinet ministers, a greater representation than found in Australia, the United States or the United Kingdom. Yet despite this achievement, Indonesia lags behind in the UN's Gender Inequality Index, ranking 104 out of 160 nations in a 2017 report. Meanwhile, as part of a push to decentralise governance, authorities are devolving many decision-making powers, and the budget to go with them, to the leaders of each of Indonesia's more than 75,000 villages. While villages are said to have a greater say in determining their own futures, the sad fact remains that women's voices are still largely missing from village governance. Why is gender inequality stubbornly refusing to come down across the archipelago? How different are the needs and concerns of women in villages from those living in Indonesia's cities? What is being done to empower women in villages? And how successful have these efforts been? With us to discuss the opportunities and challenges in empowering Indonesian women are political economist Dr. Rachel Dipros from the University of Melbourne School of Social and Political Sciences and political scientist Dr. Amalinda Sabirani from Universitas Gajamada in Jogjakarta. Both are involved in research on the ground in selected Indonesian villages to gain a clearer picture of the social, cultural and economic dynamics in those settings. Their research is supported by the Australia-Indonesia Partnership for Gender Equality. Rachel, welcome. Welcome back. And welcome, Linda, to Ear to Asia. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Great to see you here. Now, let's start with a very broad picture, Linda. Try and give as clear a snapshot as we can of where women fit in that vast archipelago and the really marked diversity across Indonesia. Indonesia is a very vast country. There are people living in the urban area and there are also people living in the rural area. Statistically speaking, the urban area, there will be a trend that there will more people living there. But it doesn't mean that there is no significance for the people living in the rural area. Each of these areas, both urban or rural, women face different challenges. In the urban area, for instance, services are more available. They live close to each other. The population is more dense. At the rural area, it's the opposite. You know, services are very scarce. There are villages located very remote. They have to fight for their services, all of these women. So these challenges contribute to the way women try to get their rights, try to empower themselves. Does the fact that there's a fairly strong middle class in parts of 
Indonesia in the bigger cities compared to the villages? Is that part of the picture we're describing here? Women living in the urban area, most specifically the middle class, they have so many exit strategies if they cannot find good quality of services, for instance, healthcare or education. They have money, so they can choose other ways to fulfill their own needs, right? Something that cannot be found in the rural area among the women. They have to face daily challenge on the education for their children, healthcare and all that. So in a way, the urban women, specifically middle class, has more advantages rather than the women at the village level. But ironically, what is going on in the Indonesian media, for instance, is just more about women empowerment at the urban context among the middle class. So that's why all of us find that, uh, you know, news and public opinion on women empowerment, mostly what we call as having urban bias. As I've been thinking about this, Rachel, trying to imagine a typical, and I know there's no such thing, typical woman living in a village compared to a typical average woman living in a large Indonesian city. Of course, the village women are much closer to each other, aren't they, and have greater contact. It's easier to form those networks, I'm imagining. Is that right, though? I think we could possibly say that the nature of relationships and networks is not dissimilar in urban and rural areas because I think what you find in urban areas is that neighbourhoods, densely populated neighbourhoods, are not dissimilar to villages in the sense that everybody tends to know each other, although there may be a greater frequency of people coming in and out of those urban areas than perhaps in some of the rural areas. What you tend to find in rural areas, so imagine a village in one of Indonesia's more remote islands, in the Maluku's, the Spice Islands, or out in East Nusa Tenggara towards Timor-Leste, those sorts of areas, you know, they're fairly sparsely populated. And some of the hamlets of the villages are kilometres or days walk away, depending on the geography of each place. Many kilometres travelling if there's transport available. So it's particularly difficult for rural women in those places to be able to access birthing facilities in particular. It makes the risks of maternal mortality or complicated childbirths much greater compared with, say, poorer women in, a, in an urban area. But that said, that does not mean that there's not barriers to women in urban areas as well being able to access the services available. And another point to note, that burden and the depth of poverty is much greater in female-headed households than possibly any other household in Indonesia. About a quarter of the population, according to the statistics that we've been looking at, is female-headed households. But about half of those are in poverty and, and it's much deeper than other households who are poor might be experiencing. The cultural diversity across the archipelago, Linda, I'm imagining again quite marked diversity, different traditions, different rituals, different ceremonies across all those many islands and in the cities as well, I suppose. What role does that cultural diversity play and how diverse is it really? Yeah, culture matters a lot for women empowerment. Sometimes or most of the time culture has become one of the burden apart from the economic and social roles. So many women in Indonesia, especially at the rural area, experience triple burden economically, socially and culturally. Most of our findings shows that cultures really become a challenge for women to be empowered because there's still a set of values that's emphasized on, you know, women should be taking care of the children, women should be involved in many cultural activities, women should be serving the whole family. And those roles are quite defined in tradition? I think so, even though some exceptions also available. For instance, in West Sumatra, 
it is a matrilineal social structures, meaning like women play major roles in daily activities, but at the same time, they also position male as a very important position, you know. It will also attach to religious, I mean, like Islam and Catholicism also very much at the village level, very much give another burden for women. What we're talking about in that sense, we mean, you know, not culture per se, but the cultural norms that evolve and the expectations that that places on gender roles. So when we're talking about a triple burden, that's not necessarily the case in all places, but in places where custom and tradition, which is called adat in Indonesia, are very strong, there's often very strong expectations around how communities participate in the ceremonies, processes, decision-making, forums, leadership structures and so on, according to those customs and traditions. So from a burden on women perspective, you may have your household duties, you may also be contributing to household income through some sort of work or labour or economic activities or household gardens or running small kiosks that sell small goods or cottage industry work, that sort of thing, while also at every custom and tradition ceremony preparing the food, undertaking various ceremonial roles. Of course, men have those sorts of roles as well. However, how the other burdens are spread while you're undertaking those roles make it very complex and expensive and a particular challenge for women. And that can vary in different places across the archipelago. Linda, when we use the word elite, and I'm reading in a lot of the reports that I've been reading um, leading into this discussion, the word elite is used a lot. What do we actually mean in all those different villages and in a specific village by the word elite? Is it mainly the men who are members of the elite? Yes, most of the so-called elite usually are leaders or their families, families of the leaders. And majority of the villages has male leaders. Elite can also be religious, like religious leader, in terms of social, you know, those who have been living there and have what we call blue blood, and then elites, which has been like public servant, you know, government officials, there also can be elites. So we have so many types of elites. The point is that they don't really think about the people. People should always follow elite. And elites who are also male versus most of the population are female. You know, that kind of combination happening at the village level in particular and in Indonesia in general. I would add to that that, you know, the features of whom we might consider to be elites tend to be that they have a decision-making authority and power and a fair degree of influence. So Linda's emphasis on undertaking or holding leadership roles, in so doing, elites are making decisions that affect not just themselves but many, many other people. And that matters if not as many of those are necessarily women or people who are advocating for women's needs. That's not to say all women, if they're in leadership roles, might advocate for the broader needs of other communities of women or that men wouldn't take up that mantle. But it is to say that, you know, there's a disproportionate representation of men in those leadership and elite positions which have better access to economic wealth, authority, decision-making power and influence. In 2014, the Indonesian government passed what is known as village law, in order to give villagers a greater say in the types of infrastructure they want built or services they need delivered. Linda, in real terms, what exactly is village law? Uh, actually, this is the second, we can call it the second phase of decentralizations. The first generation, the first phase is on the district level, started effectively in 2001. 
in 2014, it's village law. So there's more lower unit of government that get the authority to decide what they think best for the people. So this law covers 75,000 villages, as you already mentioned earlier, which give kind of freedom to decide what village leaders think is good for the people. It covers so many issues. Until now, we are still, I think, trying to shape the best way to implement this village governance. But in one way, it's very clear that the government try to acknowledge and recognize the village democracy. Because in Indonesia, before the direct election of our presidents, at the village level, they already exercised this direct election for a long time. You know, they are the earlier generation of democracy in Indonesia. The democracy has always been part of their daily life in the village level. So that's become formalized in the village governance uh, law where the leaders are elected directly by the people, where the leaders will have their authority, their own fund to decide all kind of services that benefit the villagers without being intervened by the higher authority in the Indonesian structural administrative system. So it's been a kind of improvement for Indonesian democracy by having this law. Not just decision-making, but some money to execute sure. some of the decisions. Sure, that's also very important. What drove this reform? You mentioned that earlier phase of it all, and it's been quite a long time coming in 2014. Now you're in the implementation phase, I guess, since the passing of the law. But what was the underlying, I guess, almost abstract political concept that drove that? One of the principles of democracy and decentralization is the closer you are to the people, the better because you are dealing with their daily life and you are trying to solve problems that they face. So that's one of the principles of decentralization, right? That's first. The second is about, as I mentioned earlier, historically and culturally, village has always been the heart of democracy in Indonesia. But after the formation in 1998, it seems to be that village has not yet get any recognition, political recognition from the government. So that's how scholars, activists, or villagers themselves try to think and then involves quite significant time to set up this bill, which spirit of, you know, bringing government closer to the people and to be able to solve their daily problems and practice the real democracy at the village level. Let's talk about the money, Rachel. We know that villages vary in size from, I guess, small collections of households to quite large ones. This figure of, if we use American dollars, 75,000 American dollars per village, explain that further. So each of those villages varies in size and density and location and geographic scale and needs and... And and culture. And culture. And each is now getting its own budget annually. At that village level. At that village level of approximately 75,000 US dollars, which is approximately 100,000 Australian, depending on what the exchange rate is of the day. Now, that can vary slightly, going up and down, not enormously significantly, but it can vary according to the population size of the villages. So some villages might be 500 people, and others in rural areas, I'm talking now, could be 6,000. They're bigger in what's known as a kalurahan in an urban area. It's more of a sort of an urban village, you know, but ranging sort of from 500 people up to 6,000. But you find in those small villages in terms of population, they have a very large geographic scope. So the sorts of infrastructure that's needed, roads and so on, is obviously per household more expensive to provide. So the formula for 
deciding the amount per village takes into account both population size, geography or geographic spread, as well as the degree of poverty in those villages. So there's a bit of a variation around the margins, but that is still an enormous change in the Indonesian context. And the decisions around how those funds are spent are meant to be community-driven. They're meant to be decided through village meetings, which, according to the law, any villager can participate in, and collectively decided through a process of village deliberation and consensus building, known as mushawara, collectively decided, not one man, one vote, but through long discussion and deliberation and debate, coming to an agreement about what those funds are then spent on in every single rural village in Indonesia. An enormous task, an enormous task. An enormous task. Are those discussions typically assiduous and careful? Are there dynamics of power in position? What's going on in those discussions? Well, if we come back to Linda's point earlier about the influential and pivotal role of elites in decision-making, obviously the village government is there, the village head has a very strong and significant role. There is a small village representative council which may sort of act as an accountability mechanism on the village administrators or the village head and his village staff. They have a strong role in that process. It also, you know, depends on the nature of each village, what their livelihoods are, who's providing the sort of funds and capital for different sorts of businesses. They probably are more involved in village politics and decision-making or turn up to those meetings. But what we've been looking at is how women, through groups and forms of collective action and the civil society organisations supporting them, are able to influence that process of decision-making around the village fund, what it's spent on, and getting involved in delivering the programs that the village decides on. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Peter Clark with guests Dr. Amalinda Savirani and Dr. Rachel Diprose, and we're discussing the opportunities and challenges in empowering women in Indonesia's more than 75,000 villages. Linda, give us some examples. Describe some of the dynamics that have been going on, particularly as women join more assertively within that decision-making process within a specific village. Could you describe just how that's unfolding now since the passing of the law in 2014? I will take you to South Sulawesi. It's uh, five hours driving from Makassar, the capital city of South Sulawesi. It is a village in the islands that you have to take boat to get there. And ever since this devolution of power at the village level, as well as serious works from the civil society organization for a program on women empowerment, things change significantly. Women who are earlier feel like their kids going to school is not their issues or their health care, they accept what it is, now starting to realize that no, my kids go to school, there should be teachers there who, you know, attend the class. So otherwise, my kids will not get any education services. But because of the weak control or monitoring to the teachers on the service delivery and education, some teachers sometimes do not show up in class. Or sometimes the midwife prefer to give service at their house rather than at the healthcare center, which have a different cost. So what they do is like, you know, knocking the door of the teacher of the midwife, telling them, no, this is not the right way to do. You should go to class and, you know, teach our kids. Or you should go to the healthcare center to serve us for our delivery, baby delivery, you know. 
That's micromanagement. Exactly. And then it's very, what I earlier said, that concrete and daily issues that the women in the village level face. In one way, it is an opportunity for them to get involved, open up because of the village governance law. As Rachel mentioned earlier, there's also a challenge. But for us in this research, we see opportunities and how we can strengthen the power of women at their own village and then, you know, get involved in all the kind of decision-making that benefit them eventually. These civil society organisations, the CSOs, obviously have a big role to play, but who's involved in those? Who's running those? Uh, most of the partners that we are working, collaborate with, are coming from the area itself, understand how the local context, the cultural context, the economic context, and all kind of context. So they are more sensitive on what's going on at the village level. They speak the language. You know, they can be really flexible in the way they facilitate the women at the village level you know, to be more powerful to be more involved, to have a greater influence in decision-making. So the CSOs, Rachel, sit in a way aligned with the more traditional decision-making processes, is that right? Assisting women particularly to have a stronger voice within those processes. So the civil society organisations sit outside of government and therefore a strong accountability mechanism, but they're also a source of enormous knowledge, skill and support for villagers, and in this instance that we're talking about today, for women themselves. And they're doing some extraordinary work because one of the things that they're trying to strengthen following the implementation of the village law is the involvement of all manner of diverse members of society in the decision-making process around these funds and so on, but also to just simply build the skills, capacity, knowledge, networks and so on among the poor and among people whom are facing all these challenges of poverty and so on of both genders. But in this instance, because women are often very marginalised from decision-making power, a lot of the partners that we're working with are focused explicitly in that area. Getting them over humps, getting them into those meetings, giving them the skills to be effective in the meeting. Yes, and, and actually a much broader source of power than that. They're helping to establish women's groups that have a longer, more sustainable uh, impact in these communities. Within those groups, they will do some sharing of knowledge around awareness of rights or what services that are available that the government provides. You know, sometimes much of the population doesn't even know what's available out there. They will provide skills training in livelihoods options. They will help to build self-confidence of women to participate in public life, to be comfortable with public speaking. Because if you're in a community or a society where that's not the norm, it's an extraordinary hurdle to suddenly break a gender norm around your role being in the household, turn up to a village meeting, stand up and demand that money suddenly be spent on something completely different, not on roads and not on infrastructure, but on things like schools for building livelihood skills. So they do a lot of work in that space. How do they go about that? I'm just imagining giving someone more confidence to be a better public speaker or uh, marshal their thoughts to be effective when they're in argument. How do they do that? Do they actually do that in a classroom? Do they have workshops? How do they go about that? I think that? you could probably think of it more along the lines of a workshop model. So, for example, Kapal, which is one of the large national women's organisations in Indonesia who works with partners locally, they set up what's called women's schools. It's not a conventional school that 
we might think about in terms of going to the classroom. They're small collectivities of women meeting regularly and at each session they might work through a particular theme, a particular knowledge set, a particular skill, slowly, slowly. Over time, those women build friendships, they build mutual sources of support, they help solve each other's problems as new problems emerge. They find their confidence in that group. One session might be on public speaking and practising and practising even in that small group forum among people who they trust now and care about over time. Some role play. Yes. Eventually, sometime down the track, the whole collectivity may attend the village meeting or in some innovative instances, special women's meetings are being held before the village meeting to make sure those needs are identified and determined. And what's happening, for example, with the case of the women's schools, it's been so successful in a lot of areas and it's not without its challenges too because as that knowledge and skills grow, that does challenge intra-household dynamics. Mm. So the organisation... Now, now you've, you've used that phrase, intra-household <laughs> dynamics. What are we talking about here? <laughs> Traditional roles of men and women in marriages yes. and yes. what their household duties are and so on. But the civil society organisations will not just hold activities for the women. They'll also hold some for the men and as the women grow their confidence, they're also sharing information with their husbands and partners and, and kids and so on. And over time that's desensitising any threat that people might feel within the household. And sometimes the men attend some of those activities as well. But it is an exclusive and a safe space for women to learn and build their confidence. So that eventually they can have a stronger and more prominent role in public life and decision-making. And we're seeing results. We're seeing these women's schools grow. We're seeing women advocate in village meetings for some of the funding from this village fund mm. to go to funding those women's schools. And then we see the district government at a higher level being so impressed. Mm. They're going to the CSOs, they're going to these women's schools and saying, how can we do this elsewhere? That is an enormous impact. But the point of all of that is it's hard, slow, grassroots work mm. to build empowered women so that over the long term, they can continue to have a say in what's best for them in village life. And that is a long and hard road that you don't just do with technical assistance for a bit of policy making. That is grassroots bottom-up work, which is complemented by their advocacy work at the national and district level. Linda, how do you evaluate the success of those sort of programs on the ground? It's still a mix of results, but I think I agree with Rachel that it's a long and winding road to help empower the women at the village level. Maybe we don't have certainty on the result yet, but I believe it's there because you can really see how things slowly change and how things influence the way women think and also the way male think about how things should be done at the village level. How do we get good quality of services? How do we get access to livelihood? How do we get involvement in the general life of the village level? So I'm positive that we are on the right direction because we are basically establishing the foundation, you know, slowly building up foundation and hopefully from that foundation things can go up. We've got lots of examples emerging because we're only four or five years since we've been implementing this entire new overhauled sort of system. But in places we've seen women advocate for a village ambulance with the support of the village head. 
We've seen some support by the organisation PECA, which works with female-headed households, to work together with the village government in really difficult and Mm. remote areas to bring in a kind of mobile clinic Mm. with the support of the village and some of the village funding and village regulations around this to help women take their religious marriages and ensure that they're certified through civil processes as Mm. well and that they've got their identity cards, which are absolutely imperative for them to be able to access any of the services supporting the poor, the social protection programs like Rice for the Poor or Scholarships for Kids. If you don't have your ID card, it's very difficult to access those programs or the free healthcare system. So they'll bring in various government officials in a sort of a mobile clinic to remote villages to provide these services, in particular for female-headed households, but they make them more widely available as well. So by the time that mobile clinic leaves, villages that did not have this legibility and citizenship papers essentially and birth certificates and all the things that you need to function within a society are now able to access and participate and sort of legibly function in their communities. That's extraordinary work. And the village governments and the village fund is supporting this. Linda, we've heard about ambulances, schools, and of course, childbirth and and health centres. If women weren't more involved in the decision making, and I know we're fairly early on in the evolution of all this, would the priorities be very different without women's involvement? Would the men make very different decisions about where to allocate those funds? Definitely. Over the past two or three years, all of the priorities are on infrastructure, roads, water irrigation, you know, because essentially, indeed, that's what they need. But once the infrastructure's settled, then things can be changed, can be shifted a bit to other non-physical, non-infrastructure projects. So this is how the issues concern women coming in. Like, I'll take you to South Kalimantan, where this group of women try to initiate so-called village-owned enterprises. They live in a very poor area, meaning like they're really subsistence, and they try everything. They try to make business on snack, they try to make business on craft, they try everything. The problem is not with their capacity, but with the external factors, namely sometimes the price of the raw material increase, and they cannot afford it to still sell the same price. So that's how the business went bankrupt. So what they do now is trying to get together try to persuade or negotiate with the village head and ask for this village-owned enterprises where they can really get assistance, for instance, a subsidy on procurement on what they need to make their snack or craft and everything. This is a very good initiative. Development is not just a physical things, but also the human dimension and livelihood dimension. They're starting it now. I was there and see how these very strong-spirited women try to solve their livelihood problem by using the opportunity available from the village governance and village fund for their own interest and not just them, I think, but also the family. So you will see how these factors impact on how village getting more power and more money. Is corruption inevitably part of the equation in some of these villages, petty or otherwise? Indonesia is struggling with trying to eradicate that, and village governance is not an exception. I think with the people empowerment at the village level, including women, it gives more place for them to monitor how things work. 
So this is also the good thing about bringing the government closer to the people, meaning also people can watch you. I would add to that that not all of the village law implementation is about spending that money. It's broader than that. It's about having the capacity and authority to implement or introduce village regulations. And in that instance, there's also some amazing work being done by these women's groups with the support of civil society organisations to bring in new ways of thinking about tackling social problems. In two villages that I'm thinking of in different parts of Indonesia, one over in the Far East and one in the West, where there's difficult issues of domestic violence, which again you'll find globally as much as you would find in Indonesia. These organisations and the women's groups are working together with village governments to design new regulations around how cases of domestic violence might be tackled. We've got instances where safe houses are being provided now for women who are victims of domestic violence with the support of the village government and sometimes the village fund if the fund is needed. Regulations that have clear sanctions where previously some of the customary sanctions around that or other sorts of ways of responding may have put women in a difficult situation or at least avoid the whole process of registering a complaint. The point is is that there's being work done in mm. that social space, not just in domestic violence, but also in trying to dissuade against polygamous marriages and all sorts of norms that may not help women out so much. So there's work not just in how mm. the money is spent and accountability mechanisms around that, but also social accountability as well. You've both seen the realities in quite a range of villages already, the good, the bad and the ugly. Have you remained optimistic? I think we should be optimistic because um, I think the change already there. There's no way you can return back and we just have to grab all opportunities available for the better of the country. If you meet some of the women running these bigger organisations or, you know, when a woman sits in front of you <laughs> who's been a victim of domestic violence, who's never attended a public meeting, who was nervous to go to the village government to get a stamp on a document, and she starts telling you about how her and her husband have changed the structure of their household, domestic violence is less of an issue now, she's now running her own business, she's the treasurer of the group that's been formed and has joined the district monitoring team mm. supporting other villages, it's incredibly inspiring. Mm. And that's really hard work. If you meet some of the women who are leading these civil society organisations at higher levels and the advocacy work that they're doing on tough, tough issues, it's incredibly inspiring. I'm very hopeful. Rachel, Linda, thank you so much for being with us this time on Ear to Asia. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's wonderful. Our guests this time have been the University of Melbourne's Dr. Rachel Diprose and Dr. Amalinda Savirani from Universitas Gajamada in Jogjakarta. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 25th of September, 2019. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of Profactual.com. 
Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons. Copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. I'm Peter Clark. Thanks for your company.